Welcome to the RCAP USA Roundup, a podcast where we have real conversations affecting both cattle producers and beef consumers. We're your hosts, Jaden Moreland and Karina Jones. With that, let's get to today's episode. It's a hard time to be an American cattle rancher. When we started this podcast, we wanted these episodes to be real and raw conversations about the things happening in our industry. Sometimes it's hard to talk about those struggles ranchers are facing, but Karina sat down with Missouri rancher Coy Young to discuss the new No Rancher Left Behind campaign. Well, thank you, Coy Young from Missouri, for joining us on the RCAF Roundup podcast today. I can't wait to learn more about you and your story, so let's just jump right into it. Tell us about yourself and your history in the cattle industry. Yeah, let's see. I'm a a fourth-generation cattle farmer from northern Missouri. Uh, My uh, great-grandfather, grandfather, grandfather, and father were all cattle farmers, and, you know, the my father progressively got bigger over the years, ended up having 756 acres total when he passed away and uh, worked his whole life off the farm, you know, to build the farm. And then his retirement was to come home and farm. My mother was also in, a, in the uh, business as well. My grandfather, my mom's side was a dairy farmer from Stacy, Minnesota. So I mean, I have farming on both sides. So you really have cows running through your veins, right? Well, yeah, I'm both Holstein and Angus. So that's my grandpa. I had 75 Holsteins at one time. Wow. That is dairy operation back in the, you know, 60s in Stacy, Minnesota. My mom was actually adopted by my grandparents in Stacy, Minnesota, and she worked on the dairy farm. That's interesting. I didn't know that you had um, the dairy industry so so close in your lineage um that's kind of rare to find these days because of you as you have witnessed the um we've pretty much washed away most family dairies in rural america yeah my grandpa got out probably just about the perfect time before corporate america took over the dairy industry you know we've got got an actual original thorpe sale auction that my mom had burned the edges and put on a piece of plywood with poly over it to preserve it of the entire auction listing of his farm when he sold out. Wow. That's amazing. So this really is, you've got skin in the game. This really is close to the surface for you, these issues. You first came on my radar and many others radar when you shared your very um, genuine, compelling story in the New York times in December, how hard was that to be so transparent and vulnerable and share your story you know it's just peter goodman was so you know he's he's a global economic correspondent with the new york times he's a reporter that's just very approachable he has listened took notes and he'd found me on facebook you know i was ranting and raving about you know what's going on in the cattle business on facebook saying that you know things don't change I'm probably going to have to end up selling out and do something different, wrap my farm out to a bigger operation and get out because it's just not working anymore. And he contacted me uh, via Facebook Messenger. And I was kind of leery at first and I looked it up and I looked him up and I was like, okay, I guess this is actually real. And uh, we got in contact and he came to uh, Kansas City to uh, interview the trucking company that delivers vehicles for Ford with a supply chain issue at the time that they were having because of the pandemic. And 
he wanted to come visit with me, you know, and to see what was going on in rural America. And he came to the farm and I took him around to, you know, the local veterinary. I took him to the local USDA locker that we still have here. You know, we're fortunate enough to have one within, you know, 15 miles of my location that's been in business for a really long time. And, you know, he asked me the million dollar question, why is beef so high in the store and farmers are going broke? And I said, well, I can tell you four reasons, big four. <laughs> they want to keep the cow-calf market suppressed and keep us right where they want us. And while they post billion dollar profits every quarter, we continue to pay all the inputs that are now overinflated and you know, you're going in the red, no longer in the black on every single animal you sell. And he just, he was, he was mind boggled by it and just completely blown away by, you know, after inputs and stuff, I told him I'm going to make around a hundred and $150 a head on steers, you know, heifers, you may make $50 a head if you're lucky. And he was just like, that's all you make. I said, yeah, it's, you know, it's gotten worse. And I said, I fear it's going to get worse. And that's exactly what happened this year with anhydrous skyrocketing over a thousand percent and fertilizer doubling or tripling in costs. And, you know, we got into the interview and he was getting ready to leave or stand outside the veterinary office. And in the back of my mind, I didn't know if I should tell him about, you know, what happened. I had a production sale that crashed and burned during the pandemic, right when it started, Friday the 13th, uh, March 13th is when, you know, everything kind of went downhill. The feeder calf market tanked 108, hadn't been that low since November of 2010. And, you know, it's just, it was a production sale that me and my another operation that I was managing at the time, Sandy Creek Angus, were putting together. We had over a hundred registered animals to sell. Like I said, it had been, I've been taking care of our operation at that time for about seven years. And, you know, we were ready to have a sale. We had animals that were genetically superior and ready to go. And the feeder market tanked that Friday and I was going to reschedule it. And it, what happened is it, it didn't end up tanking like I figured because the sale was on Sunday the 15th. And I ended up bringing over half the animals home from the sale, walking away with a quarter of what I expected. And the banker you know, wasn't very nice to me the following weeks. They kept calling me every single day. But, you know, and that's why I told Peter, you know, that's why I was ranting on Facebook. You know, I wanted to be heard because this is a serious issue. And, you know, the American cattle farmers and ranchers have been taken advantage of for so long now, and it's just gotten worse. And it doesn't seem to be any end in sight. You know, and I told them after the sale tanked and, I was in a really, really dark place. And I told him I was, you know, gonna probably I almost killed myself. My wife came home that day and it was if she didn't come home, I wouldn't be here. She'd forgotten something and left. And I saw her come back in and I, you know, changed my mind and didn't do it. And you know, when I told him that he just looked at me and was like, Wow. It's like, well, like, I just want to be honest with you. I'm like, you know, I'm not the only person out there that feels this way. I mean, there's guys that are probably more worse off than I am, but it's just, you know, the bank was incredibly, you know, just after me, calling me, hounding me every single day. 
how are you going to take care of this? How are you going to take care of this? You know, before they're going to take legal action and make me sell some land you know, to pay off the debt I owe them. And, you know, as I just told them, and everything kind of snowballed from there. And, you know, Congressman Scott heard, you know, read the article in the New York Times. And then that's what that hearing was called. With, you know, he called that hearing about, you know, the unfair practices. Yeah, your story was very vulnerable, very raw, and completely genuine. And I cannot applaud you enough for giving a voice to what is really happening in rural America, because it is hard to talk about for some. And by nature, farmers and ranchers tend to be isolationists. You know, it's easy to stay out on the farm and the ranch, right? And just keep your head down and, and keep working and try to avoid the mental stresses. Um, but it is, it, it will also break you. And so um, I, I just can't applaud your bravery and your courage enough in sharing your story, but you're right. Your story in the New York Times got in front of some eyes that you probably didn't expect it to. And you received a phone call to testify before the um, House Ag Committee. Who, who reached out to you? That's, that's a funny story. I, I kept getting a call for about a week and a half at different times of day from Washington, D.C., and I didn't know who it was, and I kept ignoring it because I thought <laughs> the IRS was coming after me. So I was like, I'm not going to answer this. And finally, one night I was feeding silage, and I, I answered the phone. It was Daniel Feingold with the U.S. House Ag Committee, and I kind of like, I stopped for a minute. I turned the tractor off, and I said, who is this? And he told me this is Daniel Feingold with the U.S. House Ag Committee in Washington, D.C., uh, you know, Congressman Scott, you know, our chairman of the House Ag Committee read your article in the New York Times and would like you to, you know, come talk about it, you know, and I was like, uh, okay, <laughs> I didn't really know what to think, and I was like, is this real, or am I dreaming, but that following week, I had a panel interview with him and some of his, you know, co-workers there, the director of the committee, Leslie McNitt, and uh, there was one other, I can't remember her name, but it was mainly Daniel Feingold was the one I was in contact with. And he, I, you know, told them what needed to be done in the industry. And, you know, they liked my ideas and everything in that panel interview. And then they contacted me two Fridays before the 27th of April before I had to be there and say, we want you to come out. We'll set up your transportation and everything. We want you to come testify. And I was like, okay, that's great i'll uh, i'll be there and then you know i got in contact with bill with rcaf and started working on my testimony and going through everything and just you know told my story in the testimony and i did a lot of research locally here i went and interviewed a bunch of farmers and ranchers around me that you know I'm like is there any two cents you want me to put in my testimony because i know we're all going through the same thing we're all getting taken advantage of you know what what would you like me to say and everybody just said the same thing you know we want an even playing field and that's basically, that was the long and short of everything. Everybody's just tired of stagnant feeder prices. Well, you know, the American consumers are paying, you know, 40 to 50% more for beef now than they were a year or two years ago. You know, we're back to pandemic level prices. And that was just the biggest, you know, <clears throat> resolve or the biggest you know, concern. They just want an even playing field. We're not getting our fair share of the market dollar. 
for our feeder calves. And that's, you know, we've all know the statistics are out there. Bill has the charts that, you know, are completely mind boggling. And, you know, we've lost over 50% of our retail share as feeder calf producers. You know, I want to back up just a minute to kind of highlight how very unique your invitation to the House Ag Committee hearing is because you were unattached to any lobbying group. They really came after you as just coy young. We want to hear your story. So, and I mean, I think you probably got a sense of that once you were at the House Ag Committee hearing that um, the lobby, the big powerful lobbying groups in Washington, D.C. usually get those seats at those at those hearings. And so. Well, that's that's why the NCBA was there. You know, they're bought. They're bought and paid for it in the pocket of the Packers, like everybody knows. So you were you were really the David versus the Goliath there at the table. I mean, you were not representing any lobbying organization because I think that we're safe to make it clear. You were not an RCAF member at the time of that hearing, correct? No, I wasn't. I had been, and I just didn't pay my dues. And you know. mm-hmm. So it's not like we tried to set somebody up there or, or anything like that. So um, no, I, I approached Bill more for guidance because, you know, I'd never been in a situation like that. And he goes out there all the time and you know, that's what you guys do. And that's what he does there is, you know, he's fighting for American California. Yeah. And so he really guided me in my testimony on what to say and how to say. And then after I sent my rough draft to him, he was like, that's pretty cutthroat. And I was like, well, <laughs> I want to step on some toes and I want to shake some babies and kiss some hands, you know, and maybe something will get done. You know, nobody says anything. Like you said, everybody just sits back with their head down. And they get what they get and they don't throw a fit. But what are they going to do when there's nobody left to throw a fit? And, you know, the beef industry is just like Smithfield. It's completely vertically integrated and there's nothing left to fight for. All, all the land, all the, you know, the confined feeders that they're probably going to end up setting up as huge summit livestock find cattle feeding facilities because they're the only ones that can be able to afford to do it. Mm-hmm. Along the farms, along the land, along the packer, all the way to the grocery store. Yep, excellent point. You know, let's talk about briefly kind of the days following the House Ag Committee hearing. I'm sure you received some applause and some kind of warmth from uh, industries, you know, industry people like yourself, your neighbors, people like me, cattle producers, thanking you for, you know, stepping out and being bold and doing that. But you also got some negative feedback. So would you kind of share with us about that as well? No, I mean, it was crazy on my local community here. We're literally, my boys go to a school that's comprised of three towns. You know, there's only 200 kids K through 12. You know, average class size is 14, 15 people. My hometown that I live outside of Blythdale is only 192 people. And, you know, I got the attention of a lot of people locally here. My local paper called me. Uh, I had a call from uh, a radio station on Moberly afterwards. And it's, uh, you know, I got a lot of positive feedback. You know, the local community kind of just looks at me as, oh, well, you're a celebrity now. I'm like, no, not really. That's not what I wanted to get out of it. Just to be a celebrity, I just want to get something done. And 
I don't care if I'm a celebrity or not. That's that was the ultimate goal is to be heard and you know try to inflict some change in this industry that's so far gone that I hope we can get it back. But it's it was there was a lot of positive feedback, but then you know you've got your negative Nancy's, and you know there was some after the Times article came out, I actually found out it was published before Peter sent me a, a something on it saying it was actually published, you know, because he put it out right after Christmas. And I had one email from a guy that says, you know, you animal abuser, you know, I hope you die and rot in hell. And it's like, you know, I'm not an animal abuser. I birth the animals, I raise them, and then I sell them. I don't slaughter them myself. It's like, you know, my job is to keep them alive. You know, people completely misunderstand what I do in the process. You know, I love my cows. I love my animals. You know, and I, they love me. You know, you go out in the field, the bucket of feed, and they will swarm you and want to knock you over to get to the feed. And they only do that with me. You know, I take my wife out there and they kind of look, they stand back and they look at her like, who are you? You know, it's just, it's a love for the land and the animals that only a cattle farmer can know. Because you you just become one with your cows and you they're your livelihood and you know we're supposed to be. So when you step out and be bold and um, you know fight for your the future of your own operation and your neighbors, you do take some bullets in this, don't you? Yeah, and you know I fear that's to be had, but it's, it's you know the more there was more positive feedback, especially on the Times article and everything that's come from it, you know, and that's where the No Rancher Left Behind campaign came to, you know, fruition is that I got home from DC and, you know, I was just thinking, I want to do something more. There's nothing out there for guys like me that were struggling with this, you know, just everyday problems or just, you know, want someplace to go and vent without actually going to a shrink, you know, and that's where I contacted Bill and I was like, Bill, how about we do a, you know, kind of a, campaign with you know our calf all headed up and that's how you know the no rancher left behind came about you know i originally thought it was no cattleman left behind but then you know we've settled on the name no rancher left behind and you know it's just a platform that it's completely judgment free you know it's on zoom i hope everybody knows that that you know it's on our calf website you go to it click on the link every wednesday night at 8 p.m central time you know, we can all come together, talk, collaborate, talk about things. And maybe, you know, some solutions will come from that collaboration. And that's what I'm hoping. You know, two heads are better than one. You know, and then hopefully we can get multiple heads together and we can maybe come up with some solutions for some of the problems. And if guys are, you know, just having issues and stuff, we can just talk about it. Because, like I say, it's going to be one, it's a 100% judgment-free zone. You can come to talk, vent. You know, whatever. You know, you're not alone in this fight. You know, I know there's all the national crisis hotlines out there that they have, but you know, it's not really anything that's like this, where it's just a huge group of guys that can just sit together and talk about farming and what's going on and you know how they're going to make it through this year, especially with all the obstacles that we're experiencing with overinflated inputs. And you I know, mean, it's going to be a hard year on guys. 
Well, RCAF, I can say this, um, we are completely proud to walk alongside you on this campaign, No Rancher Left Behind. And I just want to, we'll post the information, but you can find it all on the RCAF website as well. And Koi hosts Zoom meetings for people involved in agriculture who kind of want to talk about the tough times, the good times, um, just get it all talked about. He hosts those Zoom meetings on Wednesday night, 8 p.m. Central Time. And um, just to give everybody a space to get it off their chest so they're not holding it in and carrying all the weight around every day. Am I right? That's it. Exactly. I mean, it's, we're all stressed to the gills and, you know, we're all worried about tomorrow. Is there going to be a tomorrow? We have all had those tough appointments with our banker. Koi is not the only one. Uh, you know, um, you're just not, we've all had those tough appointments with the banker. And then when the accountant gets done with things and you just know that the, the banker talk is coming and, and right. we just do not want anybody to feel alone in that at all. So it very, any more, very rarely is a product of poor management. It is, we have become kind of victims of some circumstances that are beyond our control. And so I applaud Koi for taking the leadership step and reaching out to RCAF and, and we just kind of ran with him and said, yeah, let's do this. Let's do this together. So you talked about your mental health journey in front of that House Ag Committee hearing, and you shared some statistics backing the issue of farmer rancher suicides. Do you want to give a voice to those right now? There's not really a whole lot of data on that. It's funny that the CDC, the last one they did was in 2016 or 17. It was still farmers are 1.5 times more likely to commit suicide than the national average, which is a lot given the fact that there's roughly less than a million farmers left in this country. So proportionally, you're saying that, um, you know, farmer rancher suicides are a really heavy burden in our population because proportionally there's so few of us left right. that it is, it is a big concern. So what do you hope to accomplish with the No Rancher Left Behind campaign and speaking out like you have? Well, I just hopefully, you know, we can just keep guys from thinking those dark thoughts, you know, going to that dark place and feeling like they're alone because they're not alone at all. I mean, we're all in this together. Like I said, there's less than, I mean, roughly cattle farmers. I mean, there's only probably 600,000 of us left. It's not very many that feed the entire country and we continue to be taken advantage of. And it's just, it's, it is, it's rough. You know, we're all, how would I put it earlier? I was talking to somebody. You know, we're all under the thumb of the big four and they can just push whenever they want. If they want to bleed us dry and take over tomorrow. They could, they could do a complete and total hostile takeover. Tank the feeder market back down to where it was during pandemic levels. And, you know, that would be the end for a lot of guys. And, and you know, you see it right now with the board, you know, remaining stagnant and prices going down when beef consumption is up in the spring and growing season is upon us, but why are feeder calves down $20 per hundred weight when they're slaughtering beef at record levels? It should be the other way around. That's complete market manipulation. 
And the fundamentals just don't make sense, do they? No, it's not basic economic principles. It's basic economic manipulation by the big four. They control everything. And it's just like right now, it doesn't make any sense why feeders are down from two weeks ago to 154. They're up to 165 there. And why are they down that much? You know, just in a two-week period when, you know, everybody's firing up their barbecues for Memorial Day weekend, it should be going up to replace all the animals they're slaughtering. Especially looking at a future calf crop that is going to be remarkably smaller than the last few years with these record cow slaughter numbers. Right. And the complete and total, you know, dismantling of the American cattle farm this year with the drought in the West and through Nebraska and everything is really taking a toll on cow numbers. You know, the statistics come out in all these reports and I just look at them and I laugh because it's like, well, you don't say cow numbers are at a high all-time high slaughter. Well, yeah, because you're not getting anything for them. You know, when you pound out a 1,400 pound cow and you get $650 for it doesn't pencil out very well. You've got more in her than the $650 that you, you get out of her. And it's just, the packers don't care. They'll go somewhere else and get it. You know, Brazil is gonna take over as the number one beef producer. After this year, they probably will be. Absolutely. I agree. Their cow herd is growing and ours is shrinking. So what is the future of your operation and the independent American cattle industry if there are not some reforms made immediately? There isn't a future. I hate to be that honest and straightforward about it because I can't make it on the amount of land that I have, nor can I make it on land that I could purchase because, you know, it's, you can't raise cows on, you know, two and a half roughly you know three and a half acres per head at four thousand dollars an acre i mean and making a hundred dollars a head i would never have it paid off in three lifetimes mm-hmm. my great grandkids would be paying for it still if i tried to expand you know it's farming from the ridge to the river is a mentality around here anymore there's guys tearing up these hills because there isn't any money in cattle and you know i'd you know, it'd be great if we could all just band together and the 600,000 of us left invest $10,000 to build our own mega farm our own packing facility. Because that'd be $6 billion, 600,000 people. We could build a hell of a packing plant for that. You know, one that compete with JBS's packing plant in Grand Island that slaughters 6,000 head a day. And, you know, if we don't take back the industry that way, or, you know, there's several co-op little packing facilities that are going to pop up, but trying to, you know, get them going and stuff that doesn't, eventually they're going to get bought out by the big four because they're not going to be able to compete because the big four has all the contracts with the huge supermarkets and everything set up to where they sell everybody the cheapest beef and the most beef, you know, for the small guys anymore. It's, it's, there's not really anything that we can do to overthrow Goliath. You know, that's the thing. It's, it is David versus Goliath. And hopefully, you know, the Price Transparency and Discovery Act is kind of a joke as well. It's just going to give the Packers more control with the contract library, you know, the breaking up into seven sections. So eventually the Packers will run out different sections out of business in each portion of the country until they have it consolidated down to where it meets their bottom line because they don't care. 
Absolutely. And, you know, that's, that's what's going to happen. It's just, if we don't stand up and do something as an entire industry and, you know, it's just take it back, you know, it shouldn't have ever gotten this far, you know, over 50% of our slaughter in this country is, you know, foreign owned. Everybody knows that. And it's just, it's going to get worse if we do something now, you know, and the breaking up the bigger companies into smaller, it's just not going to work either because they'll still continue to manipulate the markets. You know, and it's just, there is no cash market for anything because, you know, the economic study that came out that we all were reading that, you know, it says for every 1% of AMAs, the cash price of cows suppressed 5.9%. So and if they can, they're controlling 80% with AMAs right now, I mean, that's 80% times 5.9%. So you're telling me that the feeder calf markets suppressed 246%? That's pretty pathetic. No wonder we're going to broke. The economic studies are there and all the data is there, but you know, the leaders in Washington and everybody keeps sitting on their hands and not doing anything while we're out here going broke and barely scraping by. And I'm, I'm trying to be the one in the movement. And, you know, I kind of, you know, saying I put my balls on the table when I went out there, you know, and it was just me against the world, David versus Goliath. You know, and hopefully, like I say, I can be heard and hopefully the industry can be saved. There's a small segment, you know, that might survive the entire thing is, you know, all these USDA lockers popped up. They're all not USDA. That's the issue is the USDA because they're in the back pocket of the Packers and everybody in Washington as well, you know, heavily influenced by the lobbyists to keep all the small lockers from being USDA certified. So, you know, all the farmers and ranchers can't sell their beef out of their freezer to, you know, anybody that wants to purchase it. You know, I mean, there is a movement of farm to table there that needs, it could happen if the USDA would stop sitting on their hands and creating so much red tape. Like I said in my uh, testimony is that, you know, they asked me what they could do. I said, well, the USDA needs to quit creating so much red tape and over-regulating these smaller lockers, you know, because they're regulating them out of business. Mm -hmm. There's hundreds of them that popped up during the pandemic because they saw an issue. We saw huge supply chain issue grocery stores were empty and people were losing their minds you know and local lockers around here are backed up you know a year out still and then you know there's hundreds of small lockers that popped up all over the country if we can get those usda certified where small guys can you know feed out 15 20 head a year take a little bit of that profit margin back from the packing industry and put it in our pocket you know it you know it's going to be a slow process of getting the industry back going that, that route. I want to go back to the study that you referred to. If people want to learn more about that study that Koi was referencing, um, please listen to the podcast with Nathan Miller from Georgetown University. He is one of the authors behind that study. It's a continuing body of work, and we're anxious to see what more that they are going to um, release in the realm of that study. So thanks for bringing that back up. So any other final thoughts, Koi, before we wrap up? It's all the guys out there that aren't doing anything and not saying anything. We better say something now before it's too late. Quit being quiet, quit keeping your head down, you know, and don't think, you know, people are going to judge you for saying anything. Nobody cares. 
people in Washington don't care. Nobody, they, they really don't. You know, I, I talked to a representative locally here when I was working on my testimony before I went out to DC and he told me, you know, when you get out there, they're not your friends. They don't give, give two craps about you. You're going to give your testimony and you're going to leave. You know, way you're going to get their attention is if you offend someone. And that's why my testimony was very bold, very cutthroat and very straightforward. And everybody in the industry needs to be the same way. We need to come together and go straight for the throat because it is David versus Goliath and we need to chop off Goliath's head. So what I hear you saying is stand our ground and stop compromising. Exactly. Absolutely. I agree. Well, we wrap up our podcast with the same question to all of our guests. What is your favorite cut of beef, Koi, and how do you like it prepared? I'm pretty particular. I mean, this may be too much information, but I, you know, I'm starting a barbecue catering business as well, and I love to cook. But a inch and a half ribeye that is seasoned with Weber Chicago steak seasoning, and I put it in the spice grinder and grind it down a little bit more because it's too coarse for me. But an inch and a half ribeye with, you know, ground down Weber Chicago steak seasoning cooked over uh, Kingsford charcoal. Wow. Perfect medium rare. He just gave you the recipe, folks. He truly did his secret recipe. I love it. Well, thank you once again, Koi, for being so transparent and open about your story and the vision you have for the No Rancher Left Behind campaign. Everybody can check that out on the RCAF website. Join Koi on Wednesday nights at 8 p.m. Central Time on Zoom. The Zoom link is on the RCAF website. And just chat with them. Chat with everybody that's showing up just to kind of get things off of their chest. So thanks once again, Koi. Yeah, thank you. An incredible testimony and story from Koi Young. Thank you, Koi, for coming on here and sharing and for taking a stand and fighting for the industry you love. You're not alone in this fight, and you don't have to fight alone. We at RCAF are here, your fellow ranchers are here, and we all together will face these giants. We invite you to join the Wednesday night support group style calls with Koi. No pressure, no judgment, just ranchers getting together and talking about the struggles they are facing with people experiencing the exact same things. For more information about the No Rancher Left Behind campaign, please visit our website. Thanks for listening to today's episode of the RCAF USA Roundup. To learn more about RCAF USA, visit our website, www.r-calfusa.com. 